The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Why is it that some teams consistently outperform others, especially sales teams? What are their secrets and what do great companies do and great teams? To answer that, Ron Carr. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. How you been? I'm doing great. And you? Oh, you know what? Everything is going good so far. So, so tell us, what are great companies, great teams? What are they doing that's different than everybody else? Well, I think that when it comes to growing a business, if that's the metric we're using, it's, it starts with the CEO and the executive team. And it starts with their belief that what they, they don't have a sales team, they have a sales culture. And that everybody's part of that sales culture. And one of the things that I find is that one of the things that retards companies' ability to grow is when I come in to meet with the C-suite, they're not all on the same wavelength as to where they should be going, how they're going to be doing it. And so the first thing I would say is that the CEO and this C-suite have to be on the same wavelength as to what the strategic sales intent what do they want the organization to look like in the marketplace and the strategy and how they're going to go about doing it? So what happens if a CEO comes into an environment that doesn't have that in place? I mean, is it possible to change the culture to be more sales focused than it was yes. if it wasn't that way previously? The answer is yes, but the operative word that you use is process. It's not a single event. It's not a single activity. It is a process that they have to be married to and working on for a period of time. It just doesn't happen overnight. They have to engage all elements of the organization, from engineering to the back office to R&D. Everybody has to understand that they're part of that sales process. They know It's not just supporting sales reps, but how can they do things more efficiently? How can they get their acts together so they can get things out in the timelines in which the customers need to buy it? So it's an organizational shift. It's, it's, it's a mindset you know, that we're all here to serve the customer. What does that mean to be customer focused versus self-focused? You know, it's interesting. You, you bring up something that uh, doesn't always get addressed in a sales discussion. You're talking about engineers, back office, and, and some of the people who are not traditionally thought of uh, as being part of the sales team. I, I actually, my concept is that everybody sells. Everybody's part of the sales team. So, you know, share with us what, you know, what's your attitude about it? Well, when you think about sales, and I, and I teach this to sales executives, there's actually two customers you have. One is the external, one is the internal. And if everything is in order, you're probably selling about 60% to the customer, 40% internally. you got to get people internally to buy off on a strategy for the customer, buy off on the timelines you need, the deadlines, and the requests that you're making. The problem is, is that 
um, both sides lack empathy. Now, empathy is a trait that we actually look for now in leaders and salespeople, even leaders of all parts of the company. We find that when people don't have empathy, they're not listening. We find when people don't have empathy, it's all about themselves, self-focused, and they're not taking time what other needs and other people have in order to help them succeed. When we have a culture where we're all there helping each other succeed and understand each other, then and only then can we support each other and together through the sum total of all our efforts, exceed the expectations of our customers. So what does that have to do with uh, engineers and, and back office people so, and the janitor? I mean, how, does, yeah. how do all those people get looped into a sales culture? So I'll give you an example. So a lot of times I get retained on an annual basis and I go into an organization and I'll start my work with the CEO and we'll get the CEO and the executive team uh, clear on what the strategic sales intent. Once they're there in a unified way, we get the sales team on board, but then we get the management team on board. We do a program where we're bringing all the internal managers representing all the disciplines in the organization. And basically we share the sales process as to what the organization is using to go out there and gain business. But then we also bring each other into understanding all of their issues. We talk about empathy. We have each part of the organization talk about what the challenges are, you know, and what they need from each other to help them get through the day. When people understand what the challenges are, they can put the requests in a different mode that will be um, accepted at a higher rate than if it's only coming from a self-focused mindset. So the basic line is getting people to understand what everybody goes through, what the issues are, and getting them all unified on a greater purpose. When we do that kind of a meeting, Joel, there's a significant shift in the organization. It's amazing. But the thing that's key is that all those managers have to be dedicated then to bring it down to their employees. If it just stays there and nothing does, happens after that meeting, like we said, it's a process, it just all dies. So the, uh, it's easy enough for you to stand up in front of a room full of people and tell them a few things, but how do you get the next level to transfer to the next lower group? Because that's really, your whole strategy is, is really predicated on you teaching one group who then teaches the next group. How do you right. get that to happen? Well, basically what you have to do is you have to get them to buy in to begin with. And the one thing is when you want to get anybody to buy in an organization to what you're trying to do, it's not you telling them. They have to be engaged and they have to believe that they're part of building the footprint going forward. So the, one, the first thing you have to do with the, with the next tier managers is get them, in, get them agreeing that this is what they want to do, this is what they're passionate about, and then having them create the plan of how they're going to take it to the people below them and how it's not a one-day event, but it's a process and what the commitment is. And then we help them you know, figure out how they're going to do that through the types of meetings that they have. But it all starts with the mindset. I mean, that's the bottom line. If we all live that mindset on a daily basis, I know it sounds theoretical, but it's really the bottom line. If we all live in the mindset that we are all here as part of a sales organization, nothing happens if we don't sell anything. And what am I going to do in my job to help support that effort? If not everybody's living that mindset, then that's where the support breaks down. And that's when you start not meeting your customers' expectations. How do you deal with uh, people who go into being engineers or accountants or whatever they go into because they don't want to sell? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who go in those areas because they don't want to have to sell. So, so you're not defining selling as cold calling uh, prospects. No, 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 no. But, but I think it's strategy. One of the things I find in, in a lot of companies, they don't have a real strategic vision. And how does every part of the organization play into the sales process? So we take engineers, for example, right? Engineers are usually reserved individuals, okay? They're probably talking to other engineers on the, on the customer side. I don't expect them to make cold calls. And I don't expect them to go and get new accounts. 
but they have access to information that salespeople would never get. So, and so we get them to understand that their job is not to sell, but to get to know the customer as best as you can, which they can do naturally, and to see what other technical issues that they're dealing with or where the gaps are. And if they can come back and communicate it to the sales team, then that provides us additional information to make us more powerful on how we can create a better mousetrap for the customer and beat the competition. No, that's really smart. You know, I find that uh, CPAs and attorneys are really good salespeople too. Not not naturally selling like pick up the phone like before, but just what you said that they're able to go in and analyze the nooks and crannies and really find out what the issues are, right. so that salespeople then can can get the job done with the intel that that some of these other people expose. But to reiterate, externally. It's leveraging the strengths of the different components of the organization to get pieces that you can't get from one area. And internally, it's that empathy part, understanding each other better and helping each other succeed. I like that. I, I like that a lot. I want to stay on on this uh, thing where like engineers are finding information. I refer to those people as detectives or spies, you know, where they're, where they're, they're, they're fishing on information. It's kind of a low level word in a funny way, but, but you know what, if you explain it to them, Hey, listen, you're going to help do some detective work. Every time you're on the phone with uh, you know, a, a cohort at another company, you're going to be learning. We need you to feed that back. I mean, the sales culture, what you're talking about is really about transferring information to the right people who can then monetize it. Yeah. So if you look at an organization, there's four buying influences we have to cover in any organization from my own business, yours to a bigger corporation. You got the economic bias, the person who's going to sign the deal, probably never use a product or service, but they have to bless it. You got the comparative bias. These could be the engineers or purchasing to compare your solution against somebody else. You have the end user. Those are the people that use the product. And then you have uh, a coach, someone that you want, that wants you in there and is going to help you, guide you through the uh, turbulent waters of the organization. And they probably have no stake in the matter, but they think you have a good solution. So if you understand, you want to at least find the needs of all four of those uh, areas, economic, comparative, and end user. What happens in most sales strategies, no one goes after the end users. No one goes after the, uh, the comparator. So when you look at an engineer, an engineer has a direct link to a comparator. They're talking to the other people that are evaluating. They're going to trust them more and give them more information that they'll ever give to a salesperson because they expect the salesperson to just use it to shove it down their throat and tell them something that they may not need. And they also uh, trust the engineer because they understand each other. Take the end user. I was brought in by an organization that sold a uh, supply agreement to a top Fortune 50 company. And the, uh, the vice president of purchasing felt that she was being abused because there's no other alternative. So she signed the agreement for one year, but then threatened, you better come down your price because I'm going to find another source. So about eight months later, when they're ready to renegotiate this $5 million deal, they called me in because they're under that threat. And I said, when was the last time your salespeople were in the factories and your engineers? Oh, a while back. Marshal the resources, get the engineers, get the salespeople, get everybody going to all the factories. Let's talk to the end users to find what's going out. One guy walks into a, a cement floor of a, a factory, trips over a box, falls on a cement floor, and the workers come around, they pick them up, and they dust them off, and they say, are you okay? He goes, yes. And he goes, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's a piece of crap that they're forcing us to use, and it doesn't work. Well, that was a competitive product that was supposedly qualified. When we found that out, it obviously changed our strategy. The point is everybody in the organization, you know, when I sold, when I started selling in the 1980s, Joel, there was one face of contact. It was me, the salesperson. Today, there's multiple facets of contact between the customer and the vendor. You know, you got purchasing and receiving and ordering, and you've got um, engineers to engineers, you've got salespeople to buyers, you're going to the C-suite. 
You want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. What are we trying to find out? How do we leverage our strengths and getting that information you may not get? And then how do we communicate it so we can come up with a strategy to second or not? Well, consumers also uh, have more access to information. I mean, they can go on the internet. They got a, they got a thousand people helping them gather information. Now they got so much information they could learn. So, uh, you know, the, the role of, of the selling team really changes. And I, I love the concept of a selling team because uh, it's a salesperson, it's a sales engineer, uh, you know, it's, it's the back office people. It's all the people that are involved in gathering Intel information, assembling it, and then solving whatever the problem is of the consumer that's buying the product. So I think your, your definition is just spot on. Well, and also we have to change what we call a salesperson. You know, when I started selling in 1980s copiers, we didn't have the internet. So our sales training was going to Hartford for two weeks and memorizing a script for the demo of the machine. And if your hand was not at the right place in the machine at the right time, you failed. Well, that doesn't work today. You don't sell scripts today and you don't sell features, okay? Like you said, people have the internet. By the time you come in, they already know what you have. So all you're doing is puking, which is people who have the knowledge about everything, about things that they already know. There is no um, reason for them to talk to you. You know, one of the things we've been doing, Joel, that we've been taking to these companies also, to all the different departments, is how to bring works. I stumbled on, onto this when we was, my client was Edward Jones, and we're helping him reduce the sales cycle. But now with neuroscience, we understand how it really works. If you think about cortisol, which is the fight-or-flight hormone, we all have that. One of the things I teach to anybody, whether it's an engineer or salesperson, your role is not to be a salesperson. Your role is to be a leader. And there's a difference. A salesperson has the connotation that it's going to talk and show and tell. They have no empathy, and they're not finding out what's important. I ask my audiences, how many of you can't wait to meet the next salesperson who's going to bore you to death with all the details, half of which have no interest in you? Now one hand goes up. But then when I ask them the question, how many of you would value someone giving you solid advice to make sure you're making the right decision, all the hands go up. Well, that's what a leader does. A leader goes in, helps walk them through a process to identify all the gaps, all the things that they need to do, and then help them come to that natural decision. So if you take cortisol, you know, it, there's a scale of one to 10. So one to five is good cortisol. One is very low engaged, four to five is really engaged. When you start getting to six and above, the cortisol gets out of whack and you stop listening. You're checking out the conversation. So the first thing we have to understand as a leader is the moment I call you, whether it's on the phone or I come visit you, I'm an interruption to you. Even if you're my client already, I'm still an interruption. I'm interrupting a day. If you're a new customer, I'm definitely interrupting your day. And you got that wall up. The cortisol is a six to 10 because you don't want me to sell you something you don't need. The first thing that we have to do as leaders is we have to create a safe environment for people to get into an engaging conversation with us. And we share the tactics for engineers, whatever, to start talking about them, ask them the questions about where they're trying to go, find out the three biggest issues that are on their plate. That immediately changes their mindset. And no, they no longer look at you as being someone trying to sell them. They look at you as a potential resource because you're talking about the things that are important to them. You're lowering the cortisol and you're setting up the, the opportunity for them to start trusting you. Oxytocin gets released. They give you critical information and you start the sales process. It's got to be about them and where they're going to go. It cannot be about them and what they're currently doing. That's a distinct difference because cortisol got a whack because they don't want to train you in what they're doing. There's no value to them. If you lead with that, you'll never get your attention. You have to lead with where they're trying to go and the challenges that they're having. You know, this is very consistent with, uh, with everything else that's happening in the economy and the world. 
Uh, you know, there were, were used to be these uh, toll booth workers that would take the money as you drive over the uh, expressway. And then that was such a lucrative and good job that that, uh, that guy would will the job to his son. And then it would, it would go like it was a terribly boring job, but it was a lucrative, good job. And, you know, so people used to like having that job. Well, now they don't have those people anymore because the world has changed. So, you know, all workers have kind of had to elevate their skills. And what you're saying is that salespeople similarly have to elevate their skills. I mean, there are still uh, low-end products that are just commodity products that still have to be sold. You know, I don't know if it would be uh, right to put shoes or vegetables in, in that kind of a bucket, but there are a lot of things that are not complex. That- but even in the commodity products, there's still room for differentiation besides price. You know, our good friend Nito Quibain has a saying that he always shared with me since I met him 30 years ago. He said, the magic is in the mix. So if you buy your shoes, let's say, from shoes.com, all right, that, that's basically a commodity. But how does shoes.com differentiate themselves by the service? How well did they send, how fast they send you the stuff? How well they take returns? How they talk to you on the phone? So it's that mix of the whole total business offering. That's why I say a sales culture is not just a salesperson. It's everybody else that's supporting that customer where there's a break in that support. The salesperson does a great job, but then the customer service in the end doesn't find out what I'm, what's a good resolution for me and is only interested in reading a script. That's when that relationship falls and I go to someplace else. So how many, how many CEOs and sales managers look at their company as a team? I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's been always been sales teams, but you're talking about the whole company as a team, yeah, uh, just like a baseball team. They all have a job to do and they all got to get the, you know, if, if you don't have a catcher, having a pitcher doesn't work. If you don't have a first baseman, you got to have all your guys playing mm-hmm. in order for the team to win. Not that many. And that's why we have silos. And if the CEO is sitting there going, I can't understand why I have silos, well, then he knows he doesn't have a team. So are the, are these the companies, the teams, the companies that don't have silos? Or the, do those tend to be the uh, high-performing companies? I see the teams that are high-performing companies. Are do, well, let's talk about what they have to do and then how they're structured, okay? Number one, they have to stay relevant. So they have to be flexible. High-performing companies know that whatever they come out today with technological advance, whether it's technical or service offering, the day they come out, they consider it obsolete because they know that once they have a new level, competition is going to try and catch up. The only way they keep staying ahead is they go, go invent, invent the new offering. So that's a mindset. You need to have a CEO who understands that. You need to have a CEO that understands that they have to have a vision. That's their responsibility, not anybody else. And then the CEO has to be a good salesperson. The CEO has to be able to get his people engaged, have them come to an agreement on what the solution is, and then find out what each area needs and help them fill the gap so that they can fulfill their part of the mission. That's what a CEO does. And today, the best salesperson for any company is the CEO because they're out there representing the company as the face of the company. The best CEOs I know are the ones who get this idea and embrace it. I'm, I'm with you 100%. I love the idea and, and really believe in that. And my experience is that better companies uh, tend to be operating as, as teams, just like baseball teams, football teams. You can't have, uh, you can't have a bad left fielder and, and think you're going to win the game. Because no, you got a great sales team where the guy goes, I, I get it. You know, the guy took care of me, knew my needs. And then all of a sudden, delivery is not there, uh, service is not there, and, and it's costing more money. It's causing more pain than they're going to leave. So you can't do one, with, one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. So the inside track to success for these companies, really, number one, is to look at their organization uh, in a more global way as, as a big team. Forget about a sales team. The engineers, everybody's part of the team because they all have to innovate. They all have to provide customer service. They all have to uh, 
uh, you know, do a good job in rendering whatever responsibility, the delivery teams, the drivers. I mean, everybody's part of the team because if a single person, uh, you know, falls down on the job, listen, one of the things I like to say is that everybody sells, you're either selling or you're anti-selling. So a rude customer, uh, you know, will anti-sell and push people away, right? And you can tell that. I mean, you know, my UPS driver comes in, you know, he cares about me. He's been coming in here for 12 years, you know, anything I can do for you beyond picking up your packages. You know, they're trained that way. They're trained to be part of the integral. There's a phrase that I use. You want to stay a vendor to a customer for a long period of time, then your mission has become part of the interwoven fabric. You know what I mean by interwoven fabric? It means that you're wearing a sweater. It's made up of all these, um, you know, threads. Take one thread out. You know when that one thread comes out and you go, oh my God, I'm going to lose a sweater because it's going to unravel? Well, you can't afford that thing to come out because you don't want to lose a whole sweater. You have to be that valuable in all aspects of the customer's business. They can't afford to lose you, especially when other competitors are coming in. So, you know, how do you get people to care about their job so much that they're willing to go the extra mile? Is it compensation? Is it how they're treated by their boss? I mean, I mean, it's a lot of things. What do you see? It's all of that. So let's take a couple of them side by side. So compensation, number one. Money is important, but we'll take salespeople. There was a big study done a few years ago why top-performing salespeople left their company to other companies. Money was number five out of 10 trades. Number one was lack of recognition. I remember uh, Buck Rogers, who was the, not the Buck Rogers we know from the movies, but Buck Rogers, who was a VP of IBM in the 40s and 50s. He was having his national sales meeting at Madison Square Garden, and they bring up the top winners and give them $1,000 in cash in front of the audience. And he was interviewed and said, why are you doing this? $1,000 really going to make a difference? He goes, it's not the money. It's them getting that $1,000 in front of their peers and having a stake in the ground that I'm one of the best. So money is not just compensation. It's a form of awareness and, uh, and acknowledgement. I know a situation, uh, a buddy of mine owns a business, and he hired this business development person. And the person was engaged you know, to do it re- uh, on compensation, you know, reward for what they do. And they had a plan and she wanted to make X amount of money. And then at the end, uh, he promised to do a project, didn't do it. It affected her wages. And he said, too bad. And didn't even volunteer to make it up. And she left. So, uh, you know, it, it's an acknowledgement. You know, the amount of money she left over was nothing. But it was more, hey, do you really have my back? Is this what it's about? So understand. And compensation is also used to reward the behaviors you want in the company. So compensation has to be figured out very carefully. What are the key accountabilities for the position? that if you know they're going to do that, they're going to win the game. And how do you reward them based on that? Because you have to have little wins along the way, but you want to reward the behaviors that they have to have. And obviously not reward the behaviors you don't want to have. So that's compensation. You know, Ron, I wonder, you know, what role hiring plays in this? Like if you want people to be nice, concerned, caring, I mean, that, that's a certain kind of person. Is that trainable or do you have to hire? I mean, does it start right on the first day when, okay. they, when so, you're picking, out, picking them out of the crowd? I do a lot of work in helping companies hire, right? Number one, hire slow and fire fast, right? Number two, when you're hiring for a position, never hire one against no one. What I mean by that is you must have a proper search going on where you have two to three equally qualified candidates at the end. So when you do the final interview, you're comparing who's the best one. If there's no best one, make the big decision like the client did and start over. But when you're only hiring one against no one and you have to hire that position because it's a need, what do you do with the red flags? You overlook them because you try and justify why that person's going to work. And it turns out to be the worst mistake. Understand about a mishire, okay? It's not just that person. We do a quadrant, you know, and first 
person comes in, they're highly motivated, but they're incompetent. So that means, you know, they have to get competent. They have to ramp up. Quadrant two is ideal performance, highly competent and highly uh, motivated. Then something goes on. They don't like the boss. Something's not happening. They're not being served right. They move into quadrant three, which is the cancer quadrant, where they're still competent, but they're demotivated. What do people want to do in that quadrant? They want company. So they go and recruit. So every day I ask CEOs to go into the office and say, who's in quadrant three? Because whoever's in quadrant three, that's your number one job today to find a way to get them back to quadrant two. Because if you don't, there'll be more people in the quadrant three and eventually they'll slide out to quadrant four. They go, you fire them, you got to start all over. <laughs> it's, it's really the culture of the company that gets impacted. Now, when you're talking about keeping people in quadrant two, it's now you're getting into how do you lead and how do you uh, motivate so um, I have this client and retainer, it's a custom fabricator. And one of the uh, supervisors from the plant came in to me, so upset one day, and he goes, God damn it, he's cursing. I said, what's wrong? Guy's on a cell phone. And I said, so? And he's late. I said, so? I said, what'd you do? He goes, I told him to get off the, you know what, cell phone. I said, what did he do? He said, well, everybody else is on a cell phone. I said, what did you do? I said, get off the cell phone. Did he? No. I said, how'd that serve you? So I said, look, I'm going to role play that with you. You're going to be him. I'm just going to repeat the conversation. I did it. I said, now, are you motivated to get off that cell phone? He goes, no. I said, because you're trying to win the battle and not the war. The issue is not the cell phone. The issue is being late. Now, how can you bridge it? What's this guy's motivation? You know, he wants to be a master welder. What do you need to do to have to be a master welder? You need to be on time and you need that quality. Great. Here's the conversation you have. You go in. I'm making the name up. Say, hey, Joe, you know, you want to become a master welder. Good news. The quality is right there. You keep doing that. You're going to be right on your way. I see on this job, we are 20 minutes late. How do we get this job back on time so we get everybody else working? But more importantly, you stay on track for becoming a master welder. He did that, got into a totally different conversation. Cell phone never came up, and the problem was resolved in about two hours. So the problem is leaders and managers have to manage and coach on the right issues, not the wrong issues. You know, what it really says is that... um People really need, you know, leaders. A lot of people get promoted into situations that they're not ready for. They have the technical skills, but maybe not the personnel skills. That's uh, a big one. Skills, and they really need training in those areas. Well, it's not just that, but they something changes when you promote something. And this is a good conversation to have so you get your audience can uh, think about this. Let's take salespeople, for example. Who usually gets promoted to a VP of sales? The top producer, right? Yeah, the, 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 right, right. The, the best guy. The best guy. Now, that person, he or she may have been a top producer in sales, but now that they become a manager, they got to transform into the new job, and most of them can't. Because what happens is when they were a top producer in sales, it was all about them controlling the destiny. Now their job changed. Their destiny is not controlled by them. Their destiny is controlled by the people who report to them and are they producing. And we, like I teach salespeople, you treat customers on how to, on how to treat you. We treat our employees on how to treat us. I had this VP of national accounts. And he was a driver, you know, go get it. And he, he, he was the fireman, you know, a little long ago, he couldn't wait to go and solve a problem. And that's the attitude he brought to his job now as VP of national accounts. Problems was killing him because he trained his national account people. The moment you have a difficult time, sound the alarm and I'll fly out to Kansas City and help you. That was mistake number one. He trained him for that. Number two, what did he do when he went to Kansas City? He acted like a salesperson. He took over the call because he didn't want to lose it. And he wanted to win. But their people were not learning that way. So what he doesn't realize, his new job was not to take over and win at all costs. His job might even be to lose a deal if he had to, 
if it was a way for him as a coach to identify the gaps the person's having, address those gaps with the individual in between and let them do something different. He had to train them. So not only could they do it themselves when he was there, so they can do it when he's not there. And that's how he built the sales. He did not take that step to transform into his new position. And so when someone is promoting somebody with them, you got to make sure that it's very clear what the expectations are and then provide a program to help them do that. It's so ironic that we take our best guy who's good at this certain skill, skill A, and then we tell him, okay, now go do skill B as a reward for being great at A. And, and, and the guy's going like, well, but that's not my skill, but he wants to do it because there's more prestige, money, whatever comes with it. And then the guy may or may not be any good at it. The person. So we, have, we, we use these, uh, you're right. We use these profiles of our clients, uh, you know, uh, trimetrics and disc and values and all that. And uh, there was this, won't mention a company name, but a well-known phone company. The, uh, the VP of the East that went from Kansas City to Maine to Florida called me up and said, hey, look, I got 10 districts. I want you to find out why my top 10% are succeeding in each district and why the bottom 10% are there. So we profiled those 10% on both ends of the spectrum. And it was clear as day. But I realized on, on the disc that the top performers were all extroverts. They were DIs, drive, you know, talk with people. And the poor performers were the opposite. They were high S's and C, process-oriented and people and detail-oriented. So when they brought all the district managers together, I asked them just one question. Were all these bottom performers great customer service people and you rewarded them by putting them in sales? They said every one of them. Well, congratulations, you just screwed up your organization. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've always noticed companies do is uh, they'll go, okay, we don't have time for a full-time salesperson, so half the day you're gonna be the secretary and the other half the day uh, you're gonna be the salesperson. And you know, ironically, and you'll recognize this, is that people's job swells to the one they like the most. What, what, <laughs> yeah, they're going to do that. But more importantly, as, as owners, as, as, as CEOs and as managers, we have to stop that temptation because the oldest person is really good. Let me do this. I was, in my business, I did it. You know, I would look for an admin for myself, you know, because I need someone to give me that S, the process and, and details that I'm not. And I'd screw them up. They'd be doing a great admin job and then I'd make them have making sales calls. So when I hired my new uh, VP of business development, I made it a point. I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I'm going to have that focus and give them what they need to succeed. Yeah. Listen, Ron, this has been a, uh, just a great conversation. Thank you very much for, uh, for sharing your insights. Tell us about this uh, velocity thing. You've got to, you've, you've renamed your company. How come, or tell us what's up. Well, you know, like everybody else, you want to be relevant. And, and um, my last book was lead. So get out of the way. It's still doing really well. But I went to all the CEOs of the companies that I've helped with over the last, you know, 30 years. And I asked them, you know, what was the value you got from me and what happened? And invariably, they all said, you helped us move the needle fast, whether it was with our community, whether it was with our businesses, our families. And so velocity started coming up. And we we started toying around with that concept. And then someone who was redoing my videotape, he was actually filming me. And he says, you know, velocity, you keep talking about. And I realized, I said, wow, that's what I'm about. I'm always about helping people close deals faster and, clo- and, and make businesses uh, work faster. So bottom line is we went with Velocity Mindset and it was uh, received very well by the, uh, by the uh, marketplace. And we came out with a two-minute video and it's, it's just going up bang busters. So they can see more of it at um, either VelocityMindset.com or RonCard.com, which is R-O-N-K-A-R-R. But they can go to VelocityMindset.com and see it. 
Well, we'll, we'll put all your contact info in the show Thank notes you. and people can find you. And sure. yeah, listen, Ron is a spectacular uh, keynote speaker. He's a great business advisor. Uh, he's been an advisor to me. And Ron, I appreciate you being a good friend. Well, and you've been a great friend to me, and I appreciate all that you're doing out there in the world and what you've done for me, so thank you. Well, listen, thanks very much, and uh, appreciate you uh, being on our show. And if anybody wants to find Ron, I would certainly endorse that uh, to happen. So, Ron, be well, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.